listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven Podcast with LD and Will the Thrill. Can you dig that, baby? <laughs> Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD. Along with me this week is Will the Thrill. Hello. And TJ2, the deuce. Is, is I, is, are, you, are you microwaving your whiskey? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's ill-advised, sir. <clears throat> yes, I, I was going to say, I've I've, uh, I've tried putting things in a microwave before that weren't supposed to be there, and um, I learned not to do it again. <laughs> Contrary to popular belief, kids, it doesn't take two minutes to eat up a Krispy Kreme donut. And <laughs> if you if you put chocolate-covered peanuts in the microwave, it doesn't okay. neatly melt the uh, chocolate off so that you have almost a dipping sauce and some salted nuts. You um, They explode, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so they turn into an explosive device. Good to know. Yes. <laughs> and the other, the other thing is, it doesn't just, uh, like, jack up the steaks on a on a hamster race to have them do it in a microwave. Oh my God. <laughs> oh man. So how was, uh, how was your week T? Oh, it was, uh, it was dandy. Been looking, been looking forward to this episode mainly so that I could pretty much sit back cause this is Will the Thrills episode. And you know. um, just, uh, you know, oh. Ah, there it oh. is. All right. And it, it should be pointed out we're, that, that Will the Thrill and I are not just uh, are not just being a gigantic lushes. There's a reason that we're drinking whiskey. There's oh yeah. a, yes, it is thematic. Yes, it ties into today's episode. Uh, funny enough, actually, though, uh, you know, we're, there's a three-hour time difference between you and us, T, and uh, it's 10 a.m. on a Sunday when we're recording this. Right. So basically what's going to happen is Will's going to get drunk enough over the course of this episode that I'm right. actually going to be able to take him to Michael's the craft store. I, I prefer the term getting into character. Right. <laughs> Suffering for your craft. Exactly. This is my art. So just catching everybody up in uh, like what happened in the week. Trump got COVID just to date this episode. Yep. And then um, unfortunately, a couple of people became eligible for this podcast. Yeah, yeah, I got your yeah. text. Yeah, okay. uh, the great, the great Mac Davis and Helen Reddy. Yeah, I. Uh, yeah, Helen Reddy. Wow. Yeah. Od oddly, I referenced Mac Davis on our Joe Diffie episode. Yes. Oh, that's right. You did as as a guy who did some, you know, sort of comical uh, song, sort of like Diffie did, because Davis had a song called "It's Hard to Be Humble When You're Perfect in Every Way." <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know they were going uh, song about me. And, and, before, and, bef and before anybody knew of him as a recording artist, wrote a couple of big hits for uh, this guy named Elvis. Uh, I think I've heard of him. Yeah, I think I've, um, I mean, I might have, might have seen that. Yeah, might, might have pretty, pretty, the guy, I mean, that Elvis guy was pretty, for, forget, you know, pretty forgettable outside of that, those two songs that Mac Davis wrote for him. But. <laughs> yeah, whatever. That guy's a hack. He's not going anywhere. Blip on the uh, red. Oh yeah, you're oh some some singing truck driver. Yeah, that'll 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 catch on. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, uh, speaking of someone who did catch on, mm -hmm. who are we talking about this week? Well, uh, like TJ, I've been looking forward to this episode. It's one that's uh, close to home for me. This month we have literally. Been, yeah, literally, we have been covering the Rat Pack. We started with the late great Sammy Davis Jr. 
we moved on to the late great Dean Martin. And now there's only one place to go, and that is the man at the center of it all, the late great Frank Sinatra. Yeah, I feel like, honey, uh, to be on this podcast, you have literally two criteria to be on this podcast. Late and great. Late and great. Yep. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And you have to be a musician who is dead. And these fellas certainly were. Yeah. <laughs> they were dead? <laughs> no, they certainly now were. Now we have the zombie they, rat pack. They, they oh have. my God. Well, no, no, no. Mm. It's 2020. Yeah. Would you put it past 2020? Not at this point. That no. feels like a thing that's probably going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> at some point. Uh, so hide your wife and kids. The rat pack's coming back. <laughs> Had your wife, kids, and brain. Yeah, <laughs> and booze. Yeah. All right. All right. This is this is a a pretty significant episode uh, because yeah. this is a pretty pretty significant figure in the history of music, really popular American music. And absolutely. And can I just say, on Will's behalf, again, we say this like every single week, which is that Frank Sinatra was. A mainstay. He he is still today regarded as one of the greatest artists of all time, and we are but a a mere small podcast. And because of time constraints and the fact that you know we have jobs and uh, we only scratch the surface of these people's lives. And Frank Sinatra alone, I purchased I believe four books. Yes, yes. Based on his life. And that's just portions of his life. And you're so, talking, and I was going to say, right, you're talking about a, a guy who had li- literally a 50 year career. Oh, yeah. In, in multiple industries, in too. multiple yeah. uh, facets of entertainment, and, and was among the biggest stars in all of them. So, uh, yes. Yeah. We could donate six hours just to his relationships. Oh, easily. Yeah. Just to his, not even touching on his actual careers. So, uh, please understand that when we do this, you know, we have a finite amount of time to be able to record this. And we might leave out something that you guys think is really important. But uh, please note that we we understand that and we respect these people's lives. So if we leave out something that you think is important, uh, please forgive us. Because w- if we put everything in, we'll be here until, you know, 2024 talking about Frank. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. So, what a better place to start than uh, the fact that if you Google Frank Sinatra, I'm sure you know the picture that comes up. Everyone's seen it. Uh, The famous photo of Frank Sinatra in a full suit, exiting a helicopter with a drink in his hand. Um, That photo was taken in the 1960s. Sinatra actually used the helicopter to commute. He would commute from his Palm Springs home to the airport at LAX to Warner Brothers Studios and back. So it was basically his ride to work. And the, uh, the most common caption for this is the meme, as cool as you think you are, you will never be as cool as Frank Sinatra getting out of a helicopter with a drink. Case in point. Um, <laughs> speaking of that drink, I know TJ, you're joining me on this one. I happen to have yep. Frank's signature cocktail. And if anyone's playing along at home, there's uh, three simple ingredients. And the easy way to remember how to make this cocktail is count down three, two, one. Three cubes of ice, two fingers of Jack, one splash of water. And there you have it. Frank Sinatra's signature cocktail. So this is, uh, what, the second person we've uh, done an episode on that had a signature cocktail. Is that we yeah. know? No, actually, Sammy had the grapefruit. He had the, the what was it called? Salty the dog. dog. Salty dog. Mm. 
Okay, and of course, John Prime had the handsome Johnny. <laughs> Which yeah. I like, yeah. But he, at least, it, and, and it's most of them uh, are pretty simple, uh, oddly. My, it's not, it's not something real complicated. My, yeah. my signature drink is chocolate milk. To the point that, like Prime said, e e even don't use really, really good vodka because it'll kill the fizz of the ginger ale. <laughs> right. So <laughs> it's like, eh, use, use uh, some cheap ginger ale and some okay vodka and uh, drop a wedge of lemon in from six inches above the glass. And that's, that's pretty much it. And yeah. Frank, yeah, have three ice cubes, a couple of fingers of uh, Jack, we'll splash of water, and there you go. And like Dean said, like Sinatra loves Jack Daniels in his song, uh, I Love Vegas. Uh, you can also order this drink. My recommendation would be do it the way my friend Scott does it. He walks up to a bar and says, Jack on the rocks and a punch in the face. <laughs> so <laughs> that's an alternative too, which he did many times in Las Vegas, which is also relevant to Frank because we're going to get to that. Now understand my perspective here. Like I said, this was a close to home episode for me because I am from the great state of New Jersey. And in New Jersey, there are two people you have to like. They are Bruce Springsteen, Bruce Springsteen and Frank Sinatra. Not Tara Reid. You're okay if you don't like her. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> permitted. Uh, but Bruce and Frank, you have to like, even if you don't like them, you would never say that. Uh, you would never say it in private. You would never say it in public. You would just not admit it. So I was lucky to grow up in a household that embraced Frank Sinatra. My great uncle Charlie actually introduced me to Frank because when we would visit him, he would play Sinatra on vinyl. Oh yeah, And nice. he would do this, what I was convinced, 24-7. It's all that ever played in my uncle Charlie's house. So I had an early exposure to this and I have to agree, I don't think we can be as cool as Frank Sinatra. However, we can look at that picture and say, okay, how do you become that cool? So how do you get to that point? And that's what I'm gonna look at today. We're going to dive into the life of the man we know as the voice, old blue eyes, the chairman of the board, and of course, Hoboken's native son, Francis Albert Sinatra. He was born 39 years after what I'm about to tell you. Uh, I usually don't do a rewind here, but I think it's important to understand Frank, to understand his upbringing and the context of that. So we're gonna rewind through 1876. For An old boy named yeah. Bell <laughs> invented a contraption that we know so well. Is that 1876? Yes. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Yeah, same year. You know that song, right, T? Yeah. Yeah. Reba McIntyre. Reber. That's right, Reber. It's Reber. We thankfully do not have able, able to cover on this podcast yet. Yes, so please don't. Uh, so from 1876 to 1894, more than 7.6 million Italian immigrants made their way to the U.S. That's a lot mm -hmm. of Italians. It is. Now, here's mm -hmm. what's getting crazy. From 1891 to 1915, the Italians were the largest group to immigrate to the United States. The other two were actually Ireland and Germany. But Italy was number one with a bullet. And this actually led to a burst in the Italian-born population, specifically in New Jersey, in fact, this number from 1900 to 1910 rose to 73,000 American-born Italians in New Jersey alone. Wow. Mm -hmm. And this was, of course, the area that Sinatra grew up in. You know, places like Bayonne, Union City, Jersey City, North Bergen, and Hoboken were densely populated and sort of separated. And you had these Italian neighborhoods springing up from these large numbers of immigrants that were coming over. By 1924, the Italian population was solidified as the largest foreign-born group in the entire state. Wow. Yes. And it was this pool 
that came over from Italy that included a large percentage of unskilled laborers. In fact, out of those that came from southern Italy, Sicily and the lower end of the country, over 80% of them were entirely unskilled and half of them were completely illiterate, which means they didn't speak English, but they also couldn't even write Italian. Oh, wow. Yeah. So these were people that were pretty hard pressed when they got to the States just to grab whatever job they could. And part of this group was, of course, Francesco and Rose Sinestro, who immigrated from the province of Palermo in 1903 and brought their family, which included five children, one of which was Anthony Martin Sinestro. So you may be sitting here going, well, why on earth are you telling me about these Sinestros? The reason is the name upon arrival to the U.S. was changed to Sinatra. Mm. So the interesting part about this is no one really knows why this happened. One theory is that it was a move made at Ellis Island because even in some cases, uh, names were changed on the spot or even changed in error by the clerk and it just kind of kept. <laughs> um, but it's important to note that the Sinestro name was that of Frank's father, Anthony Martin. Now there's another more, shall we say, insidious reason for that. And if we go over to the province of Palermo, we look at a small village called Lacaro Fredi, which was a birthplace of one known as Salvador Luciano. But I think Lucky. you know you know him better by his moniker Lucky, who I believe LD is one of your favorite uh, figures in organized crime, no? Yes. Yeah. So Lucky was born in the same village as the Sinestro family. The Lucianos lived on the same street as the Sinestro family, and they both left Italy for the U.S. in 1903. Okay, can I just point out, like, through all of this, like, mob stuff, that our cat, Lefty, who we are convinced is the reincarnation of a mob boss, oh, yeah. who never comes in here when we're recording, is now sitting with rapt attention. He looks like the godfather right now. Yeah, he <laughs> does. I feel like I should be in his lap and he's petting me. And I bring this up to sort of address the obvious elephant in the room. I don't think you can mention Frank Sinatra without mentioning the American Mafia. And, um, you know, for me, and LD knows this, one of my passions is studying the history of the Mafia. Yep. And learning about this. So to me, it was very fascinating when I saw that they came over in the same year from the same village. And as we go forward, there's a lot of supporting theories that lead to the idea that uh, Lucky Luciano was sort of an ever-present specter in Frank's life and career. They, uh... I was going to say they, they provided excellent sanitation services. I don't know what um, about them is a thing that would uh, intrigue you. Well, there's, there's much to be intrigued about. Uh, in fact, one of Sinatra's contemporaries, a singer by the name of Al Martino, uh, many people know him best as his role as Johnny Fontaine in The Godfather. Hey. Yeah, see, you know. In an interview with E! Entertainment, Martino said something to the effect of, I'm going to paraphrase here, that uh, interaction with figures in the mob was unavoidable. We were singers. We worked in nightclubs, bars, casinos. We got contracts with record labels. Who owned all of those entities? The mafia. It was the mafia. Yeah. yeah. It was the mob. <laughs> so, and Frank actually corroborates this later in life. He does an interview and he says, a lot of guys were around that had come out of the prohibition era and ran pretty good saloons. I worked in places that were open. They said, no, they paid, they came backstage, they said hello, they offered you a drink. If St. Francis of Assisi was a singer and worked in saloons, he would have met the same guys that doesn't make him part of anything. Ah. This came, that came from Sinatra. So please know as we go forward, I'm not claiming anything. In fact, a lot of this has been refuted by not only Sinatra, 
the parties on both sides. There are biographies that have conflicting views on this. So all I'm telling you is what I uncovered in my research. So let's get back to, I mean, that name Sinestro, that's just, I mean, basically sinister, just <laughs> rearranged a little bit. I like it. Yeah, that's like cool. Like Sinestro. Like that sounds like a, a one of those conjurers that you would yeah. come in and they oh, like have like yeah. the, the turban and the, the long fingernails and the, <laughs> predict your future. And the, the crystal balls and they're like, come to Sinestro, I'll tell you your future. So this was the family from which Sinatra was, was born. Anthony Martin, now Sinatra, was living in New Jersey. And at the same time when the Sinestros came over, the Garavante family emigrated from Genoa, Italy, which is in the northern part of the country. And they had one daughter. She had blonde hair and blue eyes. Her name was Natalie Marie, Natalia Marie. And she quickly adopted the nickname Dolly, which stuck with her her entire life. Aww. They say that full grown, Dolly stood only about five feet and weighed anywhere from 90 to 100 pounds. So she was, she was little. Uh, so in the United States, Anthony Martin and Dolly meet. Now the Garavantes were opposed to this for a number of reasons. One was the fact that Dolly's father was a tradesman. He was a lithographer. So you had the class war of trade versus non-trade, because at the time, you know, Anthony Martin was basically working as a boxer. He was, you know, in a factory. He was a load-skilled laborer. Also, there is, many people know this, a dissension, shall we, shall we say, between the Northern Italians and the Southern Italians. So that carried over to the States, where there was basically internal prejudice between these two groups. At the time, Martin, who was actually fighting under the name Marty O'Brien, because there were certain boxing clubs that wouldn't allow Italian immigrants to fight, so he basically played himself off as being of Irish descent. <laughs> uh, he would Which often... is so weird because there's like that same bias against the Irish. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and they both came out of the same group of unskilled laborers who really just had to get in a ring and punch somebody. Like that was their option to make a living. So Martin was actually considered a, quote, not very good boxer. Uh, <laughs> in fact, he actually fought two of Dolly's brothers on a couple occasions. <laughs> Neither side will say who won. However, when this happened, Dolly would often dress up as a boy and sneak into Martin's matches. So Dolly is a character. We're gonna get into her in a bit because you will see, and I would argue that she was one of the most influential figures in Frank's life, was his mother, Dolly. So long story short. Hey, spoiler alert, what? you didn't tell us that Dolly was his mom. Oh, dun, dun, dun. Ah. So spoiler alert, uh, Dolly's family did not approve of her union with Anthony. So what did they do what they do in those days? Eloped. They eloped. Uh, they actually lied on their marriage certificate about not only their ages, but where they were from. Dolly said they were both from New Jersey and not immigrants from Italy. And they married on Valentine's Day, 1914. Settled in Hoboken, New Jersey, and one year later, on December 12th, 1915, they welcomed their first and only child, Francis Albert Sinatra. Now, it's weird in this day and age to, one, wait a year to have a child. That was almost unheard of. And two, that he was the only child. So Frank clocked in at a whopping 13 pounds at birth. Holy Wow. Crap. Yeah, and Dolly- Wait, 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 how much did you weigh, T? When you were born. Uh, I weighed seven pounds, 13 ounces. See, and I weighed seven pounds, 12 ounces. So Frank was a beast. How is it, how is it that we're yeah. so different in sizes? <laughs> I, I don't know, but, so, but Frank was basically like if there was baby football, he was born an offensive lineman. Yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> I mean, how, I hope he, I, it just sounds like he just wrecked Dolly. 
Well, you say he that played, actually. Yes, he he played he played for the Hoboken Binkies. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, I mean, to your joke, Elvie, you're not entirely wrong. <laughs> Pregnancy was extremely complicated. The birth was actually very complicated because at that time they brought a midwife in to do it at home. And Frank was removed with the infamous forceps. Oh, God. Which actually gave him a, a facial scar and the nickname Scarface later in life. Fun. So he was the, technically, he would be one of the first ones because he would be. Yeah. Capone didn't get the nickname uh, until the correct. 30s. Yeah. And I'm sure, I'm sure there was no other reason to call him Scarface. <laughs> oh, no, not at all. <laughs> but the interesting thing is you'll look at pictures of Frank and you'll, you're all going to start looking at the picture for the scar. You won't find it because he used makeup frequently to cover it up. He was embarrassed by it. And you won't do face masks? Even <laughs> Frank Sinatra. I guess I need to change my tune a little bit. Yeah. So during his upbringing, like I said, Marty had a bunch of odd jobs. You know, he was a chauffeur. He was a boxer. He was a shoemaker's apprentice. Eventually, the Sinatras actually bought a tavern where Dolly became known for, quote, bouncing drunks on the street with her ever-present billy club. Ah! Wow. She, was, she just beat people with sticks. She just hit people with sticks. I love so, her. I love yes, I love that the five foot tall, ninety pound mother was the bouncer. Oh, she was throwing people <laughs> out of the bar, yeah. That was great. <laughs> so this is the world Frank grew up in. And uh now if you're doing some quick math here, Frank was born in nineteen fifteen, add some numbers, this takes you right into Prohibition era. Mm -hmm. So how do you operate a tavern during Prohibition? You turn it into a funeral parlor. Well, you need a hookup. And in this case, their hookup for bootleg liquor was a well-known gangster named Waxy Gordon, who was an associate of, ba ba da ba Lucky Luciano. Ah, Lucky. Okay. So again, Lucky kind of keeps coming who, back. In. I don't know who Waxy is. I've never, is that yeah. his actual name or is that his mom's That's name? That's his mom's name, Waxy. Okay. Yeah. But he was a bootlegger and he kept the Sinatra supplied in an era when they would otherwise not. So, so named because of his lack of leg hair. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> Yes. His candle-making ability. His partner, right. William Gordon. Um, now, Dolly worked in the tavern, but again, she was a complete character. Her main source of earning a living was working as a midwife. However, she parlayed this knowledge into a night job performing illegal abortions. At this time, you had a very large population of Irish and Italian immigrants, so the predominant religion was Catholicism. All right. So if a young lady found herself pregnant out of wedlock, she could be kicked out of her home. She could be disowned. I mean, it was severe. So Ex -ex Excommunicated, I would imagine. Excommunicated, yeah. So many young women opted in this situation to do an illegal abortion, in which case Dolly was happy to oblige with the help of some local doctors. But this it earned her a very unfortunate nickname, Hatpin Dolly. Oh. Yeah, I'll, I'll leave that one be. For I'm now. not. That's like, well, at least yep. it's not coat hanger dolly. Now, right. now, she viewed this as a public service because she pointed out what I just told you. These young women would probably be disowned, wind up on the street, and who knows what would happen from there. So she viewed this as actually sort of a noble charge, but it right. was illegal. That was the point. If, um, even, though, even though it led to people calling her old meat hook. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, dolly was very active in local politics. In this day and age, political bosses would often establish what they called neighborhood wards in immigrant communities. And the idea was to give something back to the community so you could earn votes. So it was a very quid pro quo arrangement. So if you were part of this immigrant neighborhood and you needed, say, uh, a pair of shoes for your kid or your store needed a new light fixture, you'd go to your neighborhood ward. The neighborhood ward would take it up to the congressperson. 
And the congressperson would basically make sure you got what you needed in exchange for your vote come election day. So Dolly was one of these neighborhood wards as well. So she was constantly doing political rallies. She was constantly getting people together in the neighborhood. She strongly reinforced this idea of an Italian community in America. So if you can't guess, this sort of left Frank in the wind. Uh, <laughs> he was a scrawny kid and he didn't have any friends because a lot of people were frankly afraid of his mother. So they <laughs> avoided him. Uh, he also had no brother. But how, how odd though that he, he was a skinny, a skinny kid when he was 13 pounds at birth. He was a little scrawny guy. And he didn't have any brothers or sisters, which was odd for again, a family like that in America. Most immigrant families moved and had a number of children, especially those of you know, Catholic roots. Uh, Frank later in life said this quote, he said, I had wished I had a big brother to help me when I needed it and a little sister that I could protect. Aww. He ended up spending a lot of time on his own and a lot of his time was actually in the tavern doing his schoolwork and whatnot. So he would see people like Waxy coming and going and his mom throwing people out with a club. Uh, this was the world that he knew. Frank really wasn't good at school. He didn't see the point in it. He really wanted to sort of get away from those career paths, like delivering papers, working in factories. He just didn't want to do it. He liked two things. He liked the girls and he loved clothes. So the Sinatras were actually pretty well off. Frank had, and this was sort of unheard of in this day, a charge account at a local store. He would basically go in, get whatever he wanted. At the end of the month, Dolly would pay the tab. And uh, speaking of paying the tab, hey take a short break for our advertisers and we will be right back. Sounds good. And we're back. Thank you guys for checking out those sponsors. You really help out the show by checking those guys out. And we're going to be jumping back into Frank. Well, I feel like this is very Dolly-centric. <laughs> well, she was such an important figure. Uh, she was extremely loyal to anyone who sort of saw things her way and extremely hostile to any, it was very, very much a you're with us or you're against us mentality. Uh, she wanted to control Frank's life, but at the same time, she wanted to nurture him. So it was kind of an odd balance between the two of them. Uh, but she did teach him basically three things. So Frank, walking out of his teen years, had sort of three viewpoints on the world. One was that he was part of a group of poor Italian immigrants who had to stick together to survive. Two, politics and money were forces for change on a grand scale. And three, the rules didn't apply to him. So that's really what Frank took away from all this. By the age of 15, Frank decided he had had it with school and he was going to be a singer. One of his biggest influences was actually Bing Crosby. Wow. That was our, that was our Christmas done. episode last year. Mm -hmm. Now, it's interesting that Bing has sort of this reputation of being, a, of being sort of a, you know, family white Christmas kind of guy, when the fact was he was, he was a player in the 30s. Uh, he would drink, he would womanize, he had his popular radio show, so he was really a celebrity about town. And Frank loved everything about this. Uh, another one of the musical influences he cited was actually Billy Holiday. Oh, wow. Which makes a lot of sense, because if you look at Frank's body of work, he does a lot of songs that Billy does. Mm -hmm. this, is the, this, is also, this is also the odd case in terms of this podcast where the person is not raised. It doesn't sound like in a musical home with a mom who <laughs> plays piano and a, a dad who, could, who sang in church or anything like that. Correct. And completely non-musical, actually. Right. Uh, Frank was, he did apparently play the ukulele. Now, in regards to this, I will quote the author Don Clark, who wrote the biography of Frank Sinatra, All or Nothing at All. When it came to his ukulele playing, Clark said it was, quote, best forgotten, end quote. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll leave that out there. 
Uh, Frank was trying in the early 30s to really gain any experience he could. He would sing for free. He would go to radio stations. He took gigs at school. He did weddings and social clubs, basically anyone that would have him. With Dolly's help, he actually secured an audition for a local singing group called the Hoboken Four. And they went on to a national tour in 1935, and they won a talent competition on what was then the popular radio program, Major Bo's Amateur Hour. So it was notable for Frank, but the reality of it was, and this is what you'll like, of the Hoboken Four, Frank was the only one who took it seriously. So, yeah. Do you think they ever thought of shortening the name and calling themselves like the Four Hobos? (laughs) I think that would be a different singing group. Uh, but needless to say, the band kind of fell apart, and Frank said, well, if I'm going to keep singing, I'm going to have to keep working. So he goes back to the clubs, the wedding halls, and all that stuff. So we bring up an important topic here, and I think we all have an opinion on this, and that is Frank's singing. Now, there's a very divided opinion on this. I think he's the worst singer. You think he's the worst singer? So the way, this is funny, because no, Frank- no, no, no. Can I just say, yes. yeah, he's the worst singer in the Rat Pack. But that's because, number one, Sammy Davis was such an incredible vocalist. And Dean had that, like, sexy swagger where Frank took on the, the persona of kind of, like, pre-Johnny Cash kind of talking through his songs. But the thing is, it's still Frank Sinatra, and he drops panties like Kmart. Right. So I, I'm going to explain to you sort of how I view this, and I think we're going to be in agreement here. When Frank was actually interviewed about his singing during this era, his quote was, while I wasn't the best singer in the world, they, the bands, weren't the best bands in the world. So (laughs) he kind of threw his accompanying outfits under the bus. Um, In fact, it was noted that Frank worked a wedding where the bride asked him not to sing and then later kicked him out. You know what? It's still not the worst thing I've seen at a wedding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she threw her band singer out of the wedding, which is quite funny. <laughs> so what did Frank have? And we'll use the Rat Pack as a context right here. I think we can agree that they were all three great performers. And if they were Olympiads, there'd be gold, silver medal, you know, bronze out there. Um, let's start with what I think we all agree with is Sammy was probably a gold medalist in every category. Bingo. Sure, definitely. Sing, dance, he did impressions. He was funny, he was serious. I mean, he, he could do it all. He was the consummate performer. Uh, Dean, and this is my opinion here, was the comic. He had a wit like a razor. Hmm? Extra- incredibly funny guy. And, 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 an underrated, and an underrated vocalist, I would say. And oh, he's the perfect straight man too, like, which makes absolutely. him even funnier. So what did Frank bring to the table? Well, Frank had the intangible it quality. Frank was magnetic. He was, he could charm the hair right off the top of your head. Uh, he, he was also, he was also, uh, I mean, they wouldn't have called it, called it this back then, but he was a badass. Oh, yeah. He had chutzpah. Yeah, he, he was. He was the kind of guy who had the persona of being dangerous. So he had the, you know, men fear him and women love him kind of thing. The bad boy before bad boys. Yeah. But, but he had, I mean, his level of, Frank just oozed charisma. I mean, he would walk into a room and he'd own the entire room in, in a second. Um, it was borderline almost mindful. I mean, Frank could really get people to do whatever he wanted them to do. So that's the way I look at it, the Rat Pack. You had Sammy, who was the ultimate performer, Dean was the ultimate comic, and Frank was the, the it. Okay, well, you said Sammy was the gold, gold medalist. Mm-hmm. Dean was the silver and then frank was bronze 
Like, cause that's, hey, how, that's how you're laying it out. The, the, the point I'm illustrating here is they're all top-notch performers and on sort of that level of Olympic performance when it comes to you know, vocals. We were kind of just talking vocals there, right? I mean, because all of them had areas of strength that I would say the others necessarily didn't have. That's what, that's why as a group, they actually exceeded what any of the individuals were, if that makes sense. We don't have any, in my opinion, we don't have an equivalent to them. No one has ever done what they have done. And you, you've got these like super groups like the Traveling Wilburys and the Highwaymen and things like that, but they weren't on the, the, the radar like the Rat Pack was. It, but see, the thing is, is this group, you, when you first think of them, you don't even really think of music necessarily. Because unlike the Wilburys and the Highwaymen and people like that, the only album you can find by them is a com is compilation albums that were put out way, way after the, the group had dissolved or whatever. They guested on each other's shows and they may have done some stuff together in the studio, but it wasn't like, you know, the Rat Pack, volume one, you know, <laughs> here's our first album. That, it was a different kind of a deal. It was, they were almost like an event more than they were a, a, a musical group. Right. And we, I just don't think that we've ever had anything that even remotely comes close to touching what the Rat Pack had. No, we don't. And I know we're, we're, we're a good ways from even getting to the Rat Pack, but it's just, it, it, it does bear mentioning that. Wait, we're almost yeah. 30 years off the Rat Pack at this point. Right. <laughs> oh, uh, so basically, and you bring up sort of Frank's talking through songs. Well, there is sort of another layer to that. Uh, Frank at this time was actually working as a singer and a waiter in the Rustic Cabin which is in Eddie's hometown of Englewood Cliffs. Well, it's, hey. not, it's not there anymore. Shout out to Eddie Salter. Yeah. We love you, dude. In Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey. Uh, and he started taking lessons because the one thing is Frank was serious about singing. However you try to measure his, his vocal talent, he was dead serious about doing this. And through his mother, Dolly, who secured him the job, he also got a connection to an Australian-born opera singer named John Quinlan, who lived in Manhattan. And Quinlan was the one who really gave Frank a way to, quote, use his voice. And this is where Frank really mastered the storytelling of a song. Again, you can debate his vocal prowess. What you cannot debate is the way he would emphasize certain phrases, the way he would be soft when he needed to be, the way he would increase in volume when it was necessary. So he was really a song storyteller. Mm. And this really came out of his training with Quinlan. In fact, by 1939, he was working, Frank was at the Rustic Cabin, and he was hired by a famous trumpeter named Harry James. Now, James had been with uh, another orchestra you probably know, the Benny Goodman Orchestra. Oh, yeah. And James was starting to strike out on his own. He had sort of outgrown Benny Goodman at this point. And he was starting his own outfit, and he saw Frank and thought he'd be a really good fit. So Frank joins James' band, and in six months they released 10 commercial recordings. Wow. Yeah, 10 recordings in six months. Uh, these included songs such as From the Bottom of My Heart, My Buddy, Caribbean Bibbon, and the song we're going to get to in just a moment, which sort of puts Sinatra out there on the map, which is a song that was actually a flop when it first came out in 1939, but it reached million-dollar levels of sales when they re-released it in 1943, and it's probably one of Frank's most recognizable songs. That song from 1939 is All or Nothing at All. All right, here we go. Mm -hmm. 
your appeal to me If your heart never could yield to me Then I'd rather, rather have nothing at all I said all, nothing at all If it's love, there ain't no in-between Why begin and cry for something that might have been No, I'd rather, rather have nothing at all Hey, please don't bring your lips close to my cheek Don't you smile or I'll be lost beyond recall The kiss in your eyes, the touch of your hand makes me weak It may grow very dizzy and fall And if I fell under the spell of your call I would be, be caught in the undertow Well, you see, I've got to say no, no, no That's, I mean, that's classic Sinatra. Like there's, you really can't like add anything that hasn't been added before to just, it's Sinatra. It's good. It's good. Yeah. Sure. Staple. (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) So that was, of course, one of the songs that launched Sinatra's fame. He was with the James Band at that point. And he quickly was gaining a reputation. In fact, after only seven months 
Now, bear in mind, Frank had a one-year contract with the James Band. After seven months, he gets an offer from the Tommy Dorsey Band. Now, there's two stories about how this played out. So what we do know is in December of 1939, Frank Sinatra left his contract partway through with the James Band and went with Tommy Dorsey. According to one account, Harry James said everything was fine, you know, and he was very gracious and they were happy to see him go on to greener pastures. The other side says that Harry James was visited by two gentlemen who told him that in no uncertain terms, it was in his quote, best interest to allow Frank out of his country. <laughs> and if you can't guess, who do you think those two gentlemen worked for? Uh, I'm gonna think Lucky. Lucky Luciano, yep. Let's say. Kind of, well, it's like, in the, it's like the scene in The uh, Godfather, right? Mm -hmm. Where they it's have the singer. Yeah. I was gonna guess that it was um, Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. That would be something, yeah, but it was yeah. not. Um, those weren't the two fellows? Huh, interesting. Yeah, but those are the two sides of the story. So which one is true? I don't know. That's what I uncovered in my research. Probably the second one. Let's just be honest. Are, yeah. And you know, to your point about uh, The Godfather, LD, is that was based in truth. The Godfather didn't come up with that out of thin air. This oh, was yeah. The, this was the nature of business at that time. No, I, I, I want to I say, like, it was, it, was it Paul Anka or Frankie Valley that had something similar to that? Frankie Valley. It was Frankie Valley. Frankie yeah. Valley. Mm -hmm. Okay. Another Jersey boy. Yep. So... Thank God he's still alive. I know, we so, still have Frankie. We still, ha we still have Frankie. So, 1939, Frank marries his childhood sweetheart, made a name Barbado, but of course became known as Nancy Sinatra. Uh, they settled in Hoboken and went on to have three children, Nancy, Frank Jr., and Tina. And many people know, of course, Nancy Sinatra. She went on to have a very successful career as a recording artist and an actress. Mm-hmm. And her boots were made for walking. They sure were. Yeah. And that's just what they'll do. But uh, she, and she actually starred with her father in a film as a father-daughter combination. Uh, Thank God it was father-daughter, not the other. Oh, yikes. Yeah. So uh, Sinatra was taken immediately by Tommy Dorsey, not only his professionalism, but his stature as a musician. Bear in mind, Dorsey was working with the big names in the business, including Buddy Rich at this point. Uh, he also liked how Dorsey would maintain his breath control while playing his trombone. So he actually worked with Dorsey to expand his lung capacity and vocal projection capability. And it actually, at this point, he moved into more ballads and sort of became kind of a crooner. Uh, Dorsey worked with famous arrangers such as Axel Stordahl, Paul Weston, and Cy Oliver, who instantly began working with Sinatra and saying, okay, this guy's a crooner. Let's make our arrangements fit that. So Sinatra would sing oftentimes on his own. They had a co-singer named Connie Haynes. She would actually join him for duets. And Dorsey also had a vocal group called the Pied Pipers. And this led to songs coming out. Terrible like, name. But yeah, well, you do what you can. Uh, memorable sides were released at this point, like I'll Never Smile Again, Without a Song, Oh Look at Me Now, and of course the Billie Holiday classic, I'll Be Seeing You. Okay. So an issue happened in 1942, and that was that Sinatra was more popular than the band that he was fronting. So he wanted out. Only problem is he was under contract and he didn't have anything else better to go to. And this led to apparently a very acrimonious split between Sinatra and the Dorsey band. Uh, also the idea of Sinatra going out on his own was very risky. At this point, you made your living kind of as a band singer. So if you went out solo, you were kind of you know, in the wild west. So Sinatra said he wants to leave. Dorsey didn't want to allow it. And it went back and forth for several months, actually. 
when finally late in 1942, Dorsey lets him out. And Frank goes on to perhaps his most historic and game-changing performance. It was at New York's Paramount Theater at the end of the year, I believe it was December of 1943. Almost 30,000 people showed up to see a solo Frank Sinatra. Wow. Wow. And this was also that throng of screaming young female fans. The Bobby Soxers came out in droves. So bear in mind, this is 1943. This is before Elvis. This is before the Beatles. So Frank was really breaking ground as the first pop star in America in the 40s. Uh, It was then he earned several nicknames, Frankie Boy, the Sultan of Swoon, and of course, the one that was popularized and carried with him throughout his whole life, The Voice. Old blue eyes. Old blue eyes, yeah. Now... In 1943, there was a strike. The American Federation of Musicians went on strike against the major labels, and so Sinatra couldn't be as prolific as he had wanted to be. He picked up recording again in 1944 with Columbia Records, and he really began just churning out products, releasing dozens of sides in less than three months. So again, when he was working, he was working. This Columbia recording session produced hits like If You Are But A Dream, There's No You, I Fall in Love Too Easy, and the ballad written for his wife at the time, Nancy, which I don't know if you heard is actually a very lovely song. Put Your Dreams Away was another one on this recording session. And this era from 1943 to 1952 was known as the Columbia era, which became one of Sinatra's most notable. And actually, the first double disc CD I purchased of Sinatra was The Columbia Years which is like a greatest hits. Yeah, but they did like the DECA years or the Mm -hmm. Sun recordings. Like those were, that's how you would like lump a time frame together and be able to create those like uh, compilation. And with an artist like Frank, you could do that because they have so much going on. Yeah. So during that time, he worked primarily with Axel Stordahl, who I mentioned earlier as an arranger, who had also left Tommy Dorsey in 42. And he left with the sole purpose of working with Sinatra. So he knew when he was leaving Dorsey, he was going over to Frank's camp, which caused a bit more ruffling of feathers. He arranged songs like You Go to My Head, These Foolish Things, and That Old Feeling in 1947, which really became signatures of what that Columbia era was all about. It was during this time, actually, that Frank Sinatra got to rub elbows with his idol, Bing Crosby. Two developed a relationship and were often seen taking playful shots at each other. One of my favorite quotes from Crosby at this point was, Frank's the kind of singer that comes along once in a lifetime. Why did it have to be my lifetime? Uh, Funny enough, there is a a great, I've talked about this podcast before, but the podcast, you must remember this, actually has an entire section on Frank Sinatra and Bing Crosby's relationship. Again, you could do just that. And and, Well, she did do just that. And it's a great thing. I would suggest like, if you want a little bit more on Bing and Frank, uh, go check out Karina Longworth's episode on, you must remember this, about Frank and Bing. It's, it's actually really, like, enthralling. I was painting the bedroom <laughs> while you were gone and <laughs> listening to this podcast, and I forgot to paint a whole wall because I was so enthralled. And like I said, this was three sentences in my episode here just because I had so much to cover. So there's, and hers, there's is like, there. hers is like an hour and 20 minutes. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, we can only yeah. scratch the surface. And as we mentioned before, Frank was really an all-around entertainer. He actually got into movies around this point, too. He did a number of musicals, actually, with none other than the great Gene Kelly. Yeah. He did Anchors Away in 1945, Take Me Out to the Ball Game in 1949. But perhaps his most notable 
was On the Town, which is actually considered one of the best musical films ever. Ooh. Yeah. Wes, he would like that. He would. Yeah, because he loves the classics. So good news. We've seen an uptick for Frank. Now it's about to come crashing down. Starting at about 1948, Frank went into a five-year slump professionally and personally. In his later years, Frank would go on to say that he attributed this dip due to a number of factors, but the main one was that his musical style didn't really fit what was happening at the time. This was sort of the rise of the rock and roll era in the early 50s, but we look a little bit deeper and there's probably more to it than that. So one of the major things that dogged Sinatra at this point and throughout his whole life was his exclusion from military service in World War II. Now, Frank had a punctured eardrum and psychological issues, which were fairgrounds to be disqualified from serving. However, the rumor was that Sinatra paid a doctor $40,000 to officially declare him unfit for a service. Allegedly. 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 Yes. Now, they did an investigation into this. In fact, the FBI kept an open file on Frank Sinatra for well over 40 years. (laughs) And they determined that these conditions he had were actually fair grounds to be dismissed, but the perception was still very negative. A lot of people were convinced that, you know, oh, our boys are fighting overseas. Frank's just here stealing all their women, which is not entirely untrue. (laughs) I mean... Which is a fair characterization, frankly. Yeah. But I, I think the, the crux of it is that he was pegged as weaseling his way out of service when, in fact, he wasn't really eligible anyway. So it, it got very dicey there. However, you're going to love where this goes. I'm listening. You know where it goes? So a lot of negative press stemmed, sort of cropped up in 1947 and 1948. In February of 1947, the Hotel Nacional de Cuba hosted what was really a mafia conference. Now, it was never labeled this. It was... Spe- I can't imagine why. Yeah. I was spearheaded by, which mobster? Lucky. Lucky Luciano. (laughs) Uh, He gathered everybody in February of 47, some of the main names included. Now, if you're like me and you like mafia history, I read this and started, you know, salivating. It's uh, Albert Anastasia, Vito Genovese, Frank Costello, Joe Proflacci, Tony Accardo, Tommy Lucchese, Sam Giancana, and the infamous Fischetti brothers. So it's a mob meeting. I'm sorry, the mafia killed JFK. I'm holding oh, we're, to it. Oh, wait, wait, hold that thought. Hold okay. that thought. Oh, we get to talk about it? Of course we do. Yes! Frank was linked. Oh, God. Yeah. Woo-hoo-hoo! So, I, th- um, I think I'm going to, I'm going to quote, not feel well at some point and check <laughs> out of the conversation and then maybe come back later. <laughs> now, the, the supposed purpose of this summit in Cuba was to deal with one notable mobster, I think another one you like here, LD, which is Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. Yes. So Bugsy was given the charge of opening several casinos in Vegas, and what they figured out was that he may have been, shall we say... Extorting money. Well, embezzling money. Embezzling embezzling money, sorry. So this was sort of a a summit to figure out how Lucky was going to deal with all this. Now you need to explain kind of what a summit is. Well, I'll be brief because you could do an entire podcast on this alone. So... Lucky Luciano is credited with founding what's known as the Commission, which is the governing body of the Mafia, basically the five heads of the five families. And you you see two names listed in this attendance list, Tommy Lucchese, of course, the Lucchese family, and Vito Genovese. So basically, anything that happened within the mob had to be approved by the Commission. Wait, the Bonanno family wasn't in on this? Oh, they are. Um, Well, they may have sent a rep. Okay. Yeah. So that's important to know that sort of Luciano is credited with establishing the hierarchy for the mob. Now, there was a columnist at this point named Lee Mortimer who started running stories that Frank Sinatra had traveled to Cuba on the same day as this meeting 
This is true. He did go to Cuba. He was seen with figures like Lucky Luciano and mob accountant Meyer Lansky at the Hotel Nacional. That is true. What was left to suspicion was the idea that Mortimer accused Sinatra of traveling to Cuba with an attache case containing $2 million for the mob. Ah. This led to Sinatra, one, punching Mortimer in the face, which he actually did. Uh, in the subsequent proceedings, Sinatra was quoted as saying, if you can fit $2 million in an attache case, I'll give you the $2 million. Because they're very clean, an attache case. They're, yeah, I was going to say this, that, yeah, they're very small. They're very small, so. So this, this actually didn't lead to anything. In fact, it was later revealed that Mortimer was collaborating with the FBI in an attempt to compromise Sinatra. So they were trying to, like, catch him off guard. Yeah. Yeah, but nobody from the FBI had to get punched in the face. <laughs> right. <laughs> they left it, they left it to, to the poor suffering scribe. Mm -hmm. But uh, needless to say, the case was thrown out, and Sinatra never actually was indicted on anything. But an interesting footnote, in June of that same year, uh, Bugsy Siegel was assassinated in a Beverly Hills hotel. So, wow. Oh, Beverly Hills. So again, I'm just telling you what, what we found here. Also, in fact, by this point, Sinatra had been singing roughly 100 tracks per day, it's estimated. Holy cow. Good grief. His voice was starting to suffer, and he was experiencing vocal cord hemorrhaging. Ah. So mm -hmm. the, 50s, the early 50s were not that kind to Mr. Sinatra. His marriage was on the rocks. Uh, he was married at this time, of course, to Nancy Barbado Sinatra. And, well, how would I put this? Frank was less than loyal in his marriage. Huh. Uh, in fact, his indiscretions were widely known and publicized, which was very tough on Nancy. He would often have affairs with co-workers, with women he met. Uh, he even, shall we say, supported local business by eliciting services from ladies of the evening. Oh, late, um, like ladies. So like um, seamstresses, you mean? Uh, sure. Yeah, let's go with that. Um, fix, this fix this button. <laughs> This all culminated with Frank's well-publicized relationship with actress Ava Gardner, uh, who you may know was an Oscar-nominated actress. She was in Magumbo in 1953, Night of the Iguana in 1954, and hails from Grabtown, North Carolina. Hey, I don't know where that's hey. at. I've never heard okay, of it. I know North Carolina, sure. but... Um, also, the expectation was Nancy would basically stay home, take care of the kids, and tend the house, while Frank did ostensibly whatever he wanted. So that didn't... That didn't say. So, so no, I'm just wondering, though, you said he's, he's cutting 100 tracks a day. Yep. What, what, what became of those? Because, I mean, that would equate to tens of thousands of, of songs. I mean, that, that, his catalog is big. It's not that big. Oh, yeah. I mean, and he recorded yeah. a lot of stuff Wait. that never saw the light of day. But, but that's, okay, like, say the song is three minutes long. That's 300 minutes. Mm -hmm. His voice was thrashed, is the point, yeah. Right. And, and of course, he, he, pro he drank, and I'm imagining, he drank a lot, and I'm imagining he smoked, Ooh. because everybody did then. Because everyone did. So, I mean, yeah, the, the, that would be, because his singing style is not necessarily one that taxes the vocal cords. It was a very relaxed delivery. It's just the overuse and the drinking and the smoking and the probably not sleeping very much. I, all started all to kind of, yeah. all started to add up. All those played a part, I'm sure. Sure. Uh, like you said, to not sleeping. Plus, he was traveling. You know, he did go to Cuba. That did actually happen. He was touring, so he's probably exhausted. Uh, suffice to say, the split was inevitable, and Nancy Barbado Sinatra divorced Frank in 1951, and he catapulted immediately from that relationship into one with Ava Gardner. 
Uh, in fact, they married in 1953. So that tarnished his image a little bit too. Uh, however, despite all of this, Nancy and Frank remained close through the rest of Frank's life. Wow. Yeah, so uh, again, I think that plays to- She's a better woman than me. She might, I don't know. So his subsequent marriage to Ava Gardner was really a disaster. Um, it was just bad on all accounts. At the time, also Columbia Records president Mitch Miller convinced Sinatra to reduce some tracks that weren't really in his wheelhouse. They were sort of novelty tunes, known as kind of a hack. By 1952, Frank's contract at Columbia was up, and suffice to say, they did not renew it. As a result, Frank was dropped by his talent agency. His marriage to Ava was on the rocks. He had really lost everything and was considered a has-been. They had actually padlocked the door in his Palm Springs home because he couldn't afford it. Ironically, in spite of Miller's weird requests to do these songs that nobody really cared about, there were some good tracks that came out of this period. Mad About You was one of them, nevertheless. Birth of the Blues, which is a great, yeah. great song. And one of Sinatra's, I think, highly overlooked classics, 1951's I'm a Fool to Want You which all of this came out of the Ava Gardner era. He was just channeling all this pain and heartache. In fact, at this point, he was ostensibly just following Ava around. She was shooting a movie in Africa. He'd just show up. He learned at that point in 1953 that Ava had quietly terminated a pregnancy. She didn't wow. Know. Yeah. Didn't know that. Yeah. He was, he was a wreck. He battled depression. I mean, he was quick to temper anyway. He was a very mercurial individual. He was hot. He was cold. Uh, he'd love somebody one minute and hate him the next. So he was very up and down. I wonder, I wonder, because, you know, at this point, in some genres, I'm thinking of, you know, country and, and pop and rock and stuff, you know, the, the schedules that they were required to keep, like, okay, well, you're playing in uh, Jacksonville, Florida, Monday, and you're playing in Houston, Tuesday, and you're driving yourself there. So, yeah, have fun with that. Yeah. But, there, but my point is that you do a lot, you, what, what ended up happening to people like Johnny Cash and a lot, of, a lot of people back then is you ended up hooked on pills because you, you just, because you literally didn't have time to sleep. Yeah, exactly. Plus, bear in mind, it was alleged, again, alleged only, that Frank would get calls from certain individuals who would say, you're playing this gig, and he would just have to go. Right. Again, so... Sure. that this happened uh, yeah so because the, because the lions the lions club came a calling and you can't tell them no exactly yeah <laughs> so this was a very dark period in frank's life in fact he was prone to depression throughout his life again he grew up lonely as a child he really didn't like being out of the public eye he enjoyed the spotlight he needed it uh, at this point in 1953 he was actually spotted at several local hotels he was unshaven unkempt and he'd just be sitting there at a piano kind of desperately plucking it, you know, with no song coming out, just notes strung together. Oh. Uh, so he was, he was a wreck at this point. And sure enough, it, we, it, I would have ended it there, but obviously there's more to the story. 1953 also saw the biggest comeback of Sinatra's career, arguably. Because many people forget this, Frank Sinatra is an Academy Award winning actor. And that role was Private Maggio in 1953's Here to Eternity. So when Sinatra found out about this movie, he saw the part, which was a, here's the, here's the description, the scrawny, down-on-his-luck son of Italian immigrants with a chip on his shoulder. A, a real reach for Mr. Sinatra. I was going to say, so he really had to stretch his, really had to stretch those acting muscles for that one. Oh yeah, that's like Courtney Love playing a strung-out heroin <laughs> addict on The People versus Larry mm -hmm. Flynn. Yeah, so he was a shoe-in for this one, and he went to uh, the president of Columbia Pictures at the time, Harry Cohn, who I think we talked about. And we said his name right this time. Yeah, Harry Cohn. Harry Cohn. Who 
in talking. <laughs> wow. Harry Cohn. I've seen a Harry Cohn before. <laughs> in uh, in talking to Sinatra. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, this is what happens uh, when take you a drink at eleven in the morning. Mm -hmm. So when asked about the role, Frank said, "I'll quote do it for nothing," which really meant he was getting scared. Mm. I didn't look that up in, for 1953, but he was getting, you know, standard scale. Performance was universally praised and actually earned him an Academy Award. And he became one of the top film stars of the 1950s and 60s. At this point, Sinatra also signed with Capitol Records and over the course of the next nine years built up what is widely considered his finest body of work, which is with Capitol Records. And, and But how interesting that what revived his career wasn't his uh, entertainment, uh, entertainment venue of choice, not his first one anyway. It wasn't, it wasn't he had a big comeback musically to start with. Yeah, it was film. Right. Yeah, I mean, an Oscar may, may help that. You win an Oscar and maybe more people want you. Sure. So it's actually at this point with Capital that Frank is credited with one of his imprints on the music industry. He allegedly created the, quote, concept album with Capitol Records, which is sort of a series of LPs built around a mood or a theme, which required new arrangements. Fortunately, he knew a lot of arrangers, and he happened to work with a gentleman named Billy May on this one, which he released songs I think more people know, which are Come Fly With Me, Come Dance With Me, Where Are You, No One Cares, and uh, I do have to make a retraction here because this is actually the first CD set I bought for Capital Years. Oh. So, Correction and retraction here. The first double CD set I purchased was the double set of the Capital Years collection for Frank Sinatra. We had different upbringing. Mine was Garth Double Live. That's fine. Yeah, and I'm 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 older than both of you, so my first one was Use Your Illusions One and Two. Nice. Ooh. So these were a mix of ballads, of tempo numbers, and they were arranged against around Sinatra's strengths. So these albums were top notch, of course, and his Sinatra's collaboration with Riddle, Nelson Riddle, was another arranger, was really one of the you know, landmark moments of Capitol Records, at least so they claim. Uh, Riddle was a former big band trombonist who actually did arrangements for Ella Mae Morse and Nat King Cole. Mm. And he actually scored a few of Sinatra's Capitol sessions in 53 and going over into 1954, initiating a collaboration that would last over two decades. So Riddle became sort of Sinatra's go-to arranger and later in life, Sinatra called him, quote, the greatest arranger in the world. We're going to do a little song break here. So all the albums for Capital were really under that Sinatra little, you know, riddle collaboration. Uh, great songs like Swingin' Songs for Lovers, Only the Lonely. But the one I'm going to pick out is one of my all-time favorites. It's a little more tender. It's a little more heartfelt. And that was released in 1955 in the wee small hours of the morning. about the girl and never ever think of counting sheep when you're lonely 
learned its lesson You'd be hers If only she would call In the wee small hours of the morning That's the time I mean that is that is such a gorgeous song, and I was I was saying when it was playing that the interludes remind me of when you're watching a classic film and they take that like ten seconds to show just before they kiss, and that's the music that swells right when they're kissing. It's just it's so enigmatic of that that time period. It's gorgeous. Yeah, and you can feel the his his emotion i mean it just you can feel the heartache and the longing he did a great job of conveying that you know as a story it was during these capital years of course that uh, the songs really became about sinatra's voice you know riddle was an amazing arranger and he really tailored what he was doing to fit sinatra's voice which at this point had matured a bit it had grown not only in depth but in power because he'd learned you know breath control and he was working on mastering you know his intonation with the songs so he was less of a crooner. He still was, but he's more of kind of a big band leader. Which is big band leader and, and kind of an interpreter more of story songs than before, probably. Yeah, absolutely. Had, had the nuance down to sure. like, you know, you, you, you said that that was a thing he had early was what when to back off a little bit vocally, when to give it everything he had such that he had a ton to kill necessarily vocally. Mm -hmm. But but, but the, you know, the voice matured a little. He probably matured a little. And so he became uh, kind of a better interpreter of songs as, as sure. treating them as little stories to be told. It, it, it kind of seemed like. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's very prevalent in this song, you know, in the wee small hours of the morning. You can, you can picture this. I mean, you get the image of what this guy's going through. Now, many of this was, of course, much of this was biographical. Uh, his marriage to Ava Gardner was falling apart at the seams and it was all but over at this point. Um, so a ballad like this really tapped into that heartache. And Frank always said about his singing, he said, when I'm singing, I'm being honest. 
So it was sort of that hard on the sleeve type approach. Uh, needless to say, the marriage did not survive. In 1957, they called it quits. Uh, he went after some different kinds of songs at this point, more upbeat. I think he was trying to get out of some of those blue notes that he was hitting with more of the ballads and the you know, slower numbers. He did songs like I've Got You Under My Skin. He did one more for My Baby, which is just phenomenal. That was a great song. Yeah. Oh. Great song. Uh, and again, this is illustrating a bit more variety, a bit more versatility, you know, and how Frank could take on different moods, different tempos, different arrangements. He was really a force of nature, you know, in the musical world. And ha it, he was, and it, it's, it says a lot about him that it, you're talking about now late 50s, mm -hmm. and he was still relevant because by now you're into the rock era, what's oh, considered yeah. by music historians fully the rock era by 1958, I think you said. Sure, 57. Um, sure, 57. I mean, you're, you're, you're fully into the rock and roll era by this time. So that he remained relevant and popular after having had a, a swoon in terms of popularity and, and uh, in terms of his commercial appeal, uh, that says quite a lot. Yeah. Oh, and one more thing. He was accused at this point of being a heavy communist sympathizer. So that was another what? underscore here that was uh, adding to the fuel to the pyre. Now, bear in mind, while this is going on, Frank is also working in movies. He's an actor. He did Suddenly in 1954, Young at Heart in 1954. And in 1955, he performed in Guys and Dolls, which I think most people recognize, you know, mm -hmm. in that role. But he also appeared in The Man with the Golden Arm, which got him an, another nomination for an Academy Award. So while he ultimately didn't win, he still got one win and one nomination, which is not too shabby. Yeah. The Joker is Wild was a 1957 film with Sinatra, so was Pal Joey. And then in, some, in 1958, Some Came Running was a political thriller. But however, I think his most notable film that everyone is going to recognize was released in 1962. And that was, of course, the Manchurian Candidate. Sure, and, and one whose title has, has become a, a part of, of the, the lexicon. Oh yeah, absolutely. absolutely. How often have you heard, well, such and such, you know, they're just a Manchurian candidate for whoever or whatever. Yeah, and it, it just introduced so many ideas which were used in later films, and I mean, it just became, like you said, part of the, part of the common parlance, you know. Sure. Uh, so with the exception of Bing Crosby, you know, Sinatra's idol, uh, no other American entertainer had achieved such a level of respect and popularity at this point as both a singer and an actor. You were kind of one or the other. But really, Sinatra right. was not both at this time. And, and how interesting that he ends up, um, not long after the period we're speaking of, grouped up with two others who did this, mm -hmm. who, who much in that same vein were popular and at a bare minimum proficient and right. more than one level of entertainment. Exactly, which, you know, further launched, I think, their careers, you know, because linking up with Frank, he was the man at this point. You know, they were able to, I can't remember when you said in the Dean episode how many films they did, but they were just churning them out, you know? There was tons of them. Now, now it is interesting to note that after The Manchurian Candidate, however, Frank started to find the filming process a bit tedious. He would do movies, but he stopped taking it seriously. In fact, uh, he created a clause in his contract that he would not work past 5 p.m. <laughs> so if they were shooting, wow. 5 p.m. rolled around, Frank would just leave. <laughs> and, and I assume go drink somewhere. Um, yes. Yeah, he, just, he just got on his helicopter and took off. That was it. You know, Frank wasn't working past 5. Uh, he did some other films like The Detective in 1968. And just a little flash forward here. 
his final film was actually in 1980 called The First Deadly Sin. So, well, st- as a big starring role, there was at least one I could think of after that, but... Um, oh, I, I think I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. The, the immortal, the classic <laughs> cannonball run to... Two, yeah. Well, that's where he linked up with Burt Reynolds, which was, a, which was a notable relationship. In fact, Burt tells a lot of stories in his autobiography about interactions with Sinatra. One I'll share later, but we're not, we're not there yet. Uh, so during the 50s and 60s, Sinatra, appe- Sinatra appeared on stage and in films with, you guessed it, the Rat Pack. So this is where he started linking up with Dean Martin, Joey Bishop, Peter Lawford, and of course, Sammy Davis Jr. Now, a lot of people forget this, and I was one of them, that Peter Lawford had a direct connection to the Kennedys. So around this time, you know, Sinatra is making Vegas cool again. Again, he's the image you see in that helicopter, the suit, the drink. And bear in mind, he is well into his middle age at this point. He's not a spring chicken, but he is sort of creating this culture of cool with these other members of the Rat Pack and ultimately drawing, you know, butts to the seats in Las Vegas. So in a way, he built the Vegas scene, you know? Because these are people who, they're not going to go to Vegas, but if Sinatra's there, they're going to show up. And they get to see Sammy, and they get to see Dean, and it's, it's all a big deal. So it was really what they called the height of swinging sophistication in the 1960s. And as mentioned before, we do have a direct link to the Kennedys, which of course stirs up some controversy. I know LD, you had made a comment earlier. I'm going to expound a little bit on that in the next few minutes. So we all know that Sinatra was thought to be affiliated with figures of the mafia, one of which was a very prominent gentleman by the name of Sam Giancana, based in Chicago, who was mentioned in the episode about Sammy, remember? Mm -hmm. And I think about Dean as well. Needless to say, Frank had a lot of valuable connections in the entertainment industry and a direct connection to Kennedy. So it's his connection to Giancana and the Kennedy family that makes this period so important in the history of Frank Sinatra, but of the entire country. So in 1960, at the behest of the patriarch of the Kennedy family, Joe Sr., Sinatra became a liaison between Sam Giancana and the Kennedys. I don't know if many of you know this, but this is talked about in the book, I Heard You Paint Houses. Which turned into the Netflix film. The Irishman. The Irishman, which, by the way, is... uh, one hour of a decent movie and three hours of something that they actually just showed up and shot. Right, it's, it feels very disjointed, but the book is spectacular. The book is great, the film not so much. Sorry, Scorsese. Yeah, you can't home run every time. Because I'm sure he listens to this podcast. Oh, he must be, he just unsubscribed. We lost <laughs> him, thanks. Yeah, he's gonna leave a one-star review. <laughs> so Joe Kennedy was known actually for his connection to the mafia during the bootlegging era. So that's when he linked up with the American mafia and it was speculated that the mafia was very interested in backing Kennedy as a presidential candidate because he supported their stake in Cuba. So (sighs) someone like Frank Sinatra would be a huge asset. He was basically a walking billboard for the Kennedy campaign. So there is a prevailing theory that Sam Giancana brought in Sinatra as part of a gambit to one, get Kennedy into the White House, and two, keep tabs on him while he was there. And it was really Sinatra's connection to Peter Lawford that led down this path. 
So, as we all know, Sinatra was quite involved with the Kennedy campaign. He was openly campaigning for Kennedy. And he also recorded, like I was saying last week, he recorded a version of High Hopes as a campaign song for Kennedy. Mm -hmm. He did the inaugural party for Kennedy, remember? And And can I I just say one thing really quick about this? Is that right now people are, you know, with such a heated political landscape that we have today, People are so apt to try to shut celebrities down and go, oh, you, you're just, you know, I wish you would just sing or just act. Like, I don't need to hear your political views. Yeah. But this stuff was happening like 60 years ago. Yeah. So it, it's just interesting now that all of a sudden celebrities' voices don't matter. And it, it's interesting how quickly this turned. Now, there's also a theory, and again, this was... There was evidence of this in certain books, but then it was refuted in others that Frank introduced JFK to then a girlfriend of Sam Giancana who became romantically involved with both Kennedy and Giancana. So, right, but but what, yeah. but Kennedy was married. Uh, y- yes, he was. What? <laughs> yes, yes, he what? was. What are you talking about? I don't. I don't <laughs> like. What, I, I don't like the. I resent the allegation. I resent the alligator. So again, this is what I found. Now, one thing that did happen is the quick, the hastiness, shall we say, to hook the Kennedy campaign to the Sinatra fame wagon literally fell apart after Kennedy got elected for for a number of reasons. Uh, One thing Sinatra actually did was completely renovated his Palm Springs home to welcome Kennedy after he won the office. So he redid his tennis courts, he put in new rooms, he spent millions of dollars renovating the house. The night Kennedy won, here's the story. The night Kennedy wins the election, Peter Lawford goes alone to Sinatra's home in Palm Springs and basically says, Frank, Jack's not coming. Jack being, of course, JFK. Sinatra lost it. He went off on Lawford. Some reports say he physically attacked him. Others say he just screamed at him. Uh, But he basically threw Lawford out and allegedly never spoke to him again outside of a professional setting. And And thus ended Lawford's association with the Rat Pack. Yes, which led to that relationship falling apart, but it also led to Frank's connection to the Kennedys falling apart, because within a few years, guess who headed up the investigation against organized crime? Robert Fitzgerald Kennedy, which completely went against anything Giancana had in mind when they were backing the Kennedy horse for the presidency. So it is alleged at this point that the Kennedys broke ties with Sinatra to protect themselves, and that Giancana broke ties with Sinatra because he had, quote, failed in his duties. Now, isn't it a little weird that both of them were assassinated? Yep, RFK and JFK. Super weird. Yeah, so I'm not going to go into that because that's a whole podcast on its own. Uh, Sinatra, Don't give me ideas. I got yeah. too much to do right now. Sinatra actually threw out this quote, which is very reminiscent of the one I shared with you earlier from Al Martino in regards to association with figures in organized crime. Sinatra said, if you sang in the joints, you're going to know the guys that run them. That was his thing. And he said he always went on to do business with, what was it, reputable businessmen. That's how he described it. But uh, this association with Sam Giancana was highly publicized. In fact, Frank became a majority stakeholder of the Cal Neva Lodge and Casino in 1960, which, as many of you know, the geography of Lake Tahoe, it's across the borders of California and Nevada. So this resort was right on the borderline, and Sam Giancana had a life ban from the state of Nevada. Ah. So it is theorized that Sinatra became a, quote, part owner 
to keep the casino operations running and therefore attained a gaming license from the great state of Nevada. When all of this went haywire, though, it's interesting how Sinatra was suddenly, shall we say, turned in his gaming license. Hmm. He basically gave it up and lost his stake in the county of the casino, which was, to him, a huge blow. And a little footnote here, uh, for those of you who know your mafia history, Sam Giancana went on until 1975. Uh, in June of that year, he was scheduled to testify before the Church Commission, which was a, C a group investigating the CIA plot to assassinate Fidel Castro. Again, Giancana's ready to do his testimony. It's a few days out. He's at home cooking sausage and peppers on a stove. The Chicago police are providing 24-7 surveillance. And yet on the night of June 19th, a lone gunman entered Giancana's house and murdered him in 1975. Huh. Gosh, that would, that would end, you know what? Uh, I have nothing to say about that. Never mind. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very uh, suspicious to say the least. So pivoting back to Mr. Sinatra, the 60s were obviously a big era for him. In 1960, he founded the famous Reprise record label, which was his own venture. He brought Sammy along and Dean, so he kind of brought everybody with him with that. Uh, this, the interesting thing about this is it happened concurrently with his Capitol Records contract. So Capitol actually let him go start Reprise Records, record with Capitol, and do his own thing until the end of his contract, which concluded in 1962. So this was a very active period for Frank Sinatra. In just three years, from 1960 to 1963, Sinatra recorded furiously and released something to the tune of 14 albums of new material. Oh, wow. Years. Yeah. Uh, obviously, Nelson Riddle, his favorite arranger of all time, was a go-to, but he brought in other arrangers, such as Johnny Mandel, Neil Hefty, and Don Costa, who also brought in some notes about his recordings. So yeah, in, in under three years, we're talking about 14 albums, which is pretty crazy. So these albums were released, you know, at a rapid pace, and some of them were hits, and some of them were misses. Basically, the overall quality was a little uneven, but some real classics came out of this. Uh, in the 1960s, he released two of note, which were September of My Years, and then he partnered with a Brazilian songwriter, Antonio Carlos Jobim, for the Francis Albert Sinatra and Antonio Carlos Jobim album, appropriately named. Could they make it longer? Yeah, right. But nonetheless, these are considered in 1965 and 1967 to be two of his most notable albums. And during this period was another song which has special significance to LD and I. Uh, it's been done by many artists over the years, including Sammy Davis. Uh, Rod Stewart, Michael Buble has a good version, but uh, the Why one- Why'd you say his name all weird? Michael Buble. Michael Buble. Uh, inflection, I don't know. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, the 1960 version done by Frank Sinatra is the most notable in my mind. So without further ado- And I think, I think if you look up Lindley and Will get engaged at Sardo's, mm -hmm. you'll hear a fantastic rendition of this song done by Mr. Will the Thrill. Yeah, well, like I said, I, I kind of subscribe to the Sinatra school of singing. Um, I may not be the best vocalist, but I have inflection and I have intention. And, and you drank. And I drank. Yep. Uh, so here it is. A classic needs no further introduction. Just the way you look tonight from Mr. Frank Sinatra.
someday when I'm awfully low when the world is cold I will feel a glow just thinking of you in the way you look tonight yes you're lovely with your smile so warm and your cheeks so soft there is nothing for me but to love you and the way you look tonight with each word your charm Won't you please arrange it Cause I love you Just the way you look tonight such a great song i love it it's it's you know uh really i was first introduced to the song you know probably much younger but my actual memory of being introduced to the song was my best friend's wedding was it this version specifically uh they never actually played it like the band plays it and they play like an interlude in the film i don't think they actually have the vocals anywhere in the movie until the wedding scene really but i could be wrong well as i said earlier this has been done and well by many artists frank was not the first he certainly won't be the last just his version is so just i think it it embodies everything that song is and he just hits the nail right on the head yeah so we're now into the late 60s 1966 where sinatra decided to marry again this time at age 50 he married a 21 year old actress named mia farrow 
Uh, in fact, at the wedding, his good friend Dean Martin pulled him aside and said, Frank, I got scotch older than this kid. <laughs> Again, comedy to the last. So this union predictably did not test, you know, pass the test of time. Ultimately, Frank wanted Mia to quit acting and just stay home. And Mia did not want to do that because she was actually rising to prominence as an actress. In uh, 1968, she took up the starring role in Rosemary's her, Baby. Yeah, perhaps her most notable film. I'd which say. is probably actually one of my favorite horror films of all time. I really love the horror epic films like The Shining and Rosemary's Baby and things that, you know, and she's fantastic in it, but you can yeah. actually see the change in her physicality because um can i can i say this part well uh let me get to i'll let you cap it off but i will say that their marriage did not was very rocky from the start and rosemary's baby was kind of the breaking point because again frank never wanted her to do the movie to begin with so she goes and does the film and it kept getting extended and extended and running over schedule so it just got to uh you know a boiling point and then what ultimately happened, LB? Well, I mean, what's interesting is uh, Rosemary's Baby, just a little background on the film, was considered a cursed film. Uh, it was filmed at the Dakota, which we all know was where, well, the exteriors were filmed at the Dakota, which is where John Lennon was assassinated. But uh, he served her divorce papers on set. Yeah. Frank apparently made multiple appearances on set, including one to issue her papers for finalizing the divorce. Yeah, and of course, you know, uh, it was directed by Roman Polanski, who the next year would suffer a great loss in his life. He was mired in his own controversy. Which we have talked about uh, in our Brian Wilson episodes. So their marriage didn't even last two years. It was closed out in 68 with the final presentation of said divorce papers. And Frank did what he did best. He just went back to work, you know. He had chart-topping successes throughout the late 60s, including Strangers in the Night, perhaps his most notable, uh, That's Life in 1967, and the ultimate Sinatra anthem in 1969, which was My Way. As the decade went on, though, his output was hindered a bit. One of the reasons was because people, as you point out, TJ, were into rock, and now we were getting into sort of that counterculture 60s movement, aka the Woodstock generation. And they really weren't subscribing to Sinatra's target market. Another thing that was happening was his voice was starting to get worn out yet again uh, due to, as one reporter put it, chronic years of abuse from cigarettes and alcohol. Weird that that would affect your voice. Yeah. Yeah. That it, yeah. So I do want to do the musical Cuban in a moment. I'm going to table it a little bit. Uh, by 1969, the musical meta had changed and Sinatra was basically left on his own. He even said, Nobody's writing songs for me anymore. He was still cool by the Vegas standard and was sort of the, you know, middle age version of what it meant to be cool. But now you had this up and coming hippie culture, which is moving against that. Um, And again, as the 60s sort of closed out, Sinatra felt a bit out of place. He announced retirement in 1971. He said, I'm officially retiring. That's it. I'm done. But this retirement only lasted two years. By 1973, He was back in the studio and he was recording again. And he was trying to sort of rehabilitate his voice in that time. In 1973, Sinatra met a woman who would become his fourth and final spouse. Um, And he actually met her through a mutual connection. Barbara Marks, née Blakely, was a former model and Las Vegas showgirl. And if you can't guess by the last name, was married to 
Zeppo Marx. And Sinatra was, of course, a man about the showbiz business. I think he was the Kevin Bacon of his time. Seriously, you connect anybody (laughs) through Frank Sinatra. So he was actually friends with both Barbara and Zeppo. And there was an understood chemistry between them, but they refrained. They remained friends until ultimately Barbara left Zeppo to be with Frank. Uh, That was around 1973. I know, right? And Frank was, needless to say, reluctant to get married. But uh, as Barbara put in an interview later that she basically said, you know, marry me or I'm walking. So it was an ultimatum. And they married in 1976. She was 49 at the time and Frank Sinatra was 60. So there's hope for me and Jensen Apples still. I would say that there is, yeah. Yay. So I do want to point out one thing before we do our musical interlude here that uh, a, a notable guest at this wedding took a break from his campaigning and that was uh, former President Ronald Reagan. Reagan, yeah. wow. Wow. He showed up. He showed up. Wait, so, which, we, which we figured out that, right, you, what was the, the little piece of trivia that you gave us, TJ? Well, well there, in our Dean Martin episode, there were two inaugurals at which Frank Sinatra performed. We've already mm-hmm. discussed one of them. Yep. That being John F. Kennedy's and then at Ronald Reagan's. And what's interesting that happened is he felt so burned by the Kennedy administration that he basically switched political affiliation. He started backing the Republican horse when- I, I also figure that there, there probably uh, had been some association along uh, through the years since Ronald Reagan had, had previously been an actor. Yes, absolutely. Again, they knew each other through Hollywood. And when it came time to endorse, that, to endorse Reagan as a candidate, uh, Frank was happy to oblige. Because again, he felt so just jaded by what happened with him and the Kennedys. So I think it's a good time to interject a Another song here that sums up everything Frank has gone through up until this point, the ups, the downs, the changes, as he says in the song, you know, ride high in April, shot down in May. And that is from his 1967 classic, That's Life. All right, here we go. That's life. That's what all the people say You're riding high in April Shot down in May But I know I'm gonna change that tune When I'm back on top Back on top in June I said that's life Some people get their kicks stomping on a dream But I don't let it, let it get me down Cause this fine old world, it keeps spinning around I've been a puppet, a pauper, a pirate, a poet A pawn and a king I've been up and down and over and out And I know one thing Each time I find myself Flat on my face I pick myself up And get back in the race That's life That's life I tell you, I can't deny it I thought of quitting, baby But my heart just ain't gonna buy it And if I didn't think it was 
was worth one single try. I'd jump right on a big bird and then I'd fly. I've been a puppet, a pauper, a pirate, a poet, a pawn and a king. I've been up and down and over and out, and I know one thing. Each time I find myself laying flat on my face, I just pick myself up and get I'm gonna roll myself up in a big ball and die. My, my. Classic. But you can hear the maturity in his voice. It makes me want yeah. to go around punching people. I know it gets in me. It, gets, <laughs> it just stirs you. It just Ugh. makes me violent. I, I, I need to hit something. But you can hear this versus early recordings. The breath control, the power behind the voice. It, it was still there at this point. And bear in mind, this is now his second resurgence. You know, he came up in the late 30s and 40s waned in the you know 50s then he came back in the 60s waned again and now he's coming back in the 70s he's remarried uh by the way barbara will remain his spouse until the end uh he's got the records and albums coming out so he's almost becoming bigger than he was even before and the thing is with this song uh when we were when we took a musical break i looked at will and i realized that, that this song has stayed in the public zeitgeist because it was featured on an episode of one of my favorite canceled TV shows, mm -hmm. which please bring this show back, was NBC's Smash, mm -hmm. starring Catherine McPhee, Jack Davenport, Leslie Odom Jr., Philip Passeau, uh, oh God, Megan Hilty, yeah. like all like massive musical talent. But they actually featured this song heavily in one of their episodes. So I mean, like it, it, it he's got staying power even to this day. He is a giant. Yeah. And then, and then that song is just, you can apply it to any decade. It doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, you can apply it to yeah. this year. Oh yeah. <laughs> so Frank is back on an upswing, you know, through it all. He actually turned some of his more, his shortcomings vocally into those strengths. Again, see the breath control, see the emphasis, see just the, the oomph behind the voice. I mean, you feel it. You're like, yes, Frank, we get it. Um, he continued to record well into the eighties. You know, he released, released a, three-disc trilogy in 1980, a ballad collection called She Shot Me Down in 81, and L.A. Is My Lady in 1984. Now, what's going to happen here is you're going to see sort of a shift as Frank starts to turn his focus more on live shows versus performing. And keep in mind, he's in his 60s at this point, but he's going to ratchet up the live performance aspect. So uh, he is, of course back in the studio in the you know as late as the 90s he leaves capital records obviously for reprise as we noted earlier but he comes back to capital in the early 90s and releases two popular albums duets one and duets two 
in which he started performing with really everybody. And millions of these records were sold. Millions. Uh, and they are actually Sinatra's final recordings. Now, as I said earlier, Frank really moved towards live performance at this point. This is the late 70s. And he had announced his retirement, but then he came back. From 1977 to 1995, Frank performed over 1,000 concerts. Good grief. I'm going to say that again. From 1977 to 95, Sinatra performed over on over 1,000 occasions. Cheesy crackers, that's a lot. That's insane. And again, he's in his 60s and 70s at this point. So a thousand, he did a thousand performances in, in 18 years. Give or take, yep. Yeah, wow. Yeah, in, in his 60s, mind you. In his 60s. Uh, and then sadly- So that's so, that's so, so even, even at his age, that's, I mean, he's playing on average more than once a week. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And obviously can't do it forever. I don't feel I don't feel like he ever stopped. No. Like, I didn't. feel like he just kept going. Like he would just He had breaks. He had yeah. breaks, but then he'd come back and do it even harder, like recording, you know, three hundred <laughs> minutes of Yeah, hundred takes a day. And <laughs> and like you said, you know, he had um I mean, this was a guy who started recording, I guess, in the forties and he put out a, a couple of 30s fairly big hit albums in the 90s that first duets album i don't i don't remember the second one as well to be honest with you but that first one was huge oh yeah yeah um if as i recall like a top 10 album I, he, he and bono did uh mm-hmm. i've got you under my skin on yeah. that one uh amongst some other ones so that he was a, still i remember that one's a weird version though isn't it sort of but but the the, the fact is he was recording with bono yeah he was recording with the biggest names of the time who wanted to work with Frank because who wouldn't have, but he, so that, but he had, you talked about the staying power LD, but he was still relevant and popular. Absolutely. And, and, and when you're up there in the early nineties singing a song with, with Bono, that's probably introducing you to a, a new audience who yep. maybe then go back and discover your older work and things like that. This is now three generations that he's touched. I mean, it's just, it's astounding. Uh, but like I said, nothing lasts forever. In 1995, Frank gave his final public performance. Uh, it was in Japan. It was the end of a tour. And according to his wife, Barbara, she said that everyone kind of packed up, got on the bus to go back to the hotel. And normally there's banter and sort of, you know, conversation about the night and what they're going to do. And she said it was dead silent. Dead silent. Did they know that it was his last one? Had oh, yeah. he announced, like, I'm done after this? Yeah, they, they knew. Okay. They knew. And he basically got on a plane the next day, flew back to Los Angeles, and was officially retired from performing. He set up shop at his Malibu Beach house for the later years of his life. He was suffering from a number of issues at this point, uh, both mental and physical. Uh, He had severe arthritis. Mm. His memory was starting to flag, and his voice was not what it was. And if you listen to the recordings of Sinatra in 94 and 95, you you still get that it's him, but it's it's fading. You can and, start to fade. And, and the other thing is, I, I, if I remember right, around 95 is when Dean Martin died, which was a, a huge blow to him, as we mm-hmm. learned in our last episode, because the two of them almost considered one another brothers. He, so, so much so, Frank was so crushed, he, he was not able to go 
to Dean. He had health issues too. He did, he just from an emotional standpoint didn't feel like he could even go because he said he would it would have just destroyed him. Now, if I remember correctly, I didn't think I don't think I watched the entire film, but there was a film about the Rat Pack uh, made a couple years ago. I think maybe like 10, 15 years ago. But literally, it starts off with Frank, and he's about to do his final performance. And someone says, hey, are you ready to go? And he stops, and he just says, I miss my boys. And that's how the film begins. And so it's all, of course, a flashback. But, yeah, I mean, like, he, those were his, that was his family. Like, that's, he spent 40 years with these guys. Yeah, and and they all passed. He was the last one left, you know, because Sammy passed first, then Dean, right? Yep. And then Frank, Frank hung on. Uh, and as we know, he was fiercely loyal to his friends. Like, I think that's why when you look at his mother, Dolly, and how she treated people, Frank was the same way. There was no gray area for him socially. You were either a brother till the end or he was beating you up in the parking lot. Right. <laughs> yeah, there was no middle ground. I mean, I'd be happy with either one. Yeah. <laughs> Which uh, leads us to the inevitable conclusion. May 14th. 1998. Frank Sinatra suffers a heart attack. He's rushed to Cedar sinai Medical Center right here in the city of Los Angeles. Uh, but needless to say, he did not make it. His fourth wife, Barbara, was with him when he passed at the age of 82. Frank will always be the subject of controversy. You know, obviously the things about the mob are ever-present. His behavior was kind of all over the place. His marriages, his his love life, everything was just, it's like you said, there's so much there. Uh, and he was a very complex person. A lot of people close to him said that he was very sad when he wasn't performing. You know, his wife, Barbara, said when he was alone, it was the hardest time for him. You know, he needed people. He was just a people person. And um, I always like to interject with this. Mm-hmm. So if you guys ever want to visit his grave, uh, he is buried at the Desert Memorial Park, which is in Cathedral City in California. And he is marked with a single plaque with his name, the dates, and engraved on the tablet is the best is yet to come. You know what's funny is I think back, I mean, I, I was aware of Frank growing up. One of the places that I, I really started to understand who he was, oddly, was from Phil Hartman's very over-the-top portrayal of him on Saturday Night Live. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Because if you think about it, you know, uh, Joe Piscopo had actually done <laughs> a, a Sinatra impression earlier in SNL's run, but it was much more oh, wow. uh, about him singing and and he, and he actually sounded a good bit like Frank. I think he actually did a, a tour, if I remember correctly, or, or multiple ones. But, you know, Hartman kind of boiled down the, the, the essence of his, of his gruff demeanor <laughs> and his maybe dismissiveness of certain uh, individuals and things into some of the funniest stuff um, and I, I always kind of wondered, like, if Frank ever saw that and what he thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, based on his, you know, what we talked about earlier, I think he'd either love it and he'd be hugging Phil Hartman or he'd give him, you know, the business. So. Right. I'm sure that they had a couple words to say to each other when I'm he sure. got to the pearlies. Well, one thing you can't debate about Frank Sinatra is his prolific recording career. As we just pointed out, he was part of our generation, our parents' generation, and their parents' generation. He had more than 1,400 recordings that he made over 50 years as a performer. Wow. It is is considered by many critics to be the single most important body of work 
of any American vocal artist. I'm not gonna fight that. Uh, Frank was the original, as I said, pop icon. His record sales topped over 150 million worldwide. At the time of his death, it is estimated that Frank Sinatra had a net worth as high as $600 million. Wow. He influenced artists all over the world in all different genres, including Josh Groban, Robbie Williams, Billy Joel, Alicia Keys, and Usher have all cited Sinatra as an influence. And I'm sure there's more. Many of you who are fans of Family Guy, creator Seth MacFarlane was a huge fan of Frank Sinatra. Actually, so going yeah. so far as to befriending his son. Frank Jr., yep. Frank Jr. and mm -hmm. having him uh, be a voice on the show as his father, mm -hmm. I believe. And uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, he, he, he's... Okay, so full disclosure, me and Will used to go to this bar called Sardo's. <laughs> And being in Hollywood, there's a lot of celebrities that would come in, and Seth MacFarlane did come in, and I think you remember that T because you gave out my phone number so everyone could listen to the, the voice Stewie message. The, the Stewie yeah. message. Yes. Um, and uh, he would come in, and he would do Frank Sinatra songs and well, yeah. and do them well. So it's Seth MacFarlane doing Frank Sinatra, almost as good as Frank Sinatra. It was really impressive. And again, he is credited with creating the concept album the 1946 the voice of frank sinatra is largely regarded as one of the original concept albums which again set the stage for you know decades of artists to come uh he was connected to virtually any celebrity you could think of tony bennett marilyn monroe presidents including reagan kennedy and burt reynolds and he was really sort of considered a man of the people i'm going to share one frank story that actually came out of burt reynolds biography because Burt Reynolds talked about being in a restaurant in Los Angeles where they would play cards in the back and Frank would play poker. And one night a busboy came back and tripped carrying a small tray of glasses. Few broke. The manager of the restaurant came running out, screaming at this kid, just chewing him out. And Frank just kind of keeps an ear open. He puts his cards down and stands up. He walks right up to the manager and says, how much are these glasses worth? And the manager goes, oh, they're worth, you know, X amount each. So Frank thinks for a second. And he goes, so how much is that stack over there worth? And points to a stack of glasses on the side. He said, oh, you know, it's whatever amount. So Frank turns to the busboy and he says, go smash every single one of those glasses. <laughs> and everyone kind of stops for a moment. <laughs> and, and, and Frank kind of like puts his arm on his shoulder and says, it's okay, kid, go break the glasses. And while the busboy walks over there and sheepishly starts like pushing the rack over, Frank pulls out a wad of bills and just starts peeling off counting the amount of the glasses. At that point, he shoves the money in the restaurant manager's face and says, if I find out you fired this kid, I will never come back here again. <laughs> That's awesome. That is yeah. so, oh man, I wish, I wish I could be that, that cool. But hey, Sinatra often went to bat for the little guy. You know, there are stories about him taking care. I mean, he was the kind of person, if you waited on Frank Sinatra and he liked you, you'd get hundreds of tips. I mean, easily. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, also, we mentioned Frank's first wife, Nancy Barbado Sinatra. She actually lived on to the age of 101. Wow. Passing in 2018. Wow. Yeah. How old was Olivia de Havilland when she, she, because she oh, just she passed. she was up there, yeah. It's like 104, She wasn't may she? have been, yeah. Yeah. But 101, not bad. 101 is terrific. Uh, Sinatra redefined singing as a means of personal expression. One of, uh, 
a music critic named Gene Lees said this about Sinatra. Frank learned how to make a sophisticated craft sound as natural and as intimate conversation or personal confession. So beneath all the myth and the swagger lay an instinctive musical genius and a consummate entertainer. Throughout most of his life and art, he transcended the status of mere icon to become one of the most recognized symbols in American culture. Now this episode has certainly been a bit of a roller coaster, but I think I've misled you all this time. This was more than just an episode about rock and roll heaven. This is actually a long distance dedication. Oh, look at you, Casey Queso. Yeah. Do, 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 no. do. <laughs> so uh, I thought a lot about the story of a young man, you know, immigrated from Italy, trying to make his way in the US. And I thought about another story. Uh, this was from someone who was also immigrated to the US around the same time. His father, Giuseppe, came from Italy, specifically the province of Palermo. His mother, Marie, came from Naples. And he was born in New York in 1922. And that man was Charles Schiara, my great uncle that I mentioned earlier, who introduced me to Sinatra. Aww. So uh, this one kind of circles back home. And before I go any further with this long distance dedication, I'd like LB to take care of some business here. Okay, guys. So I just wanted to take a second to talk about something that's really, really important to us here at Rock and Roll Heaven. And that is that we are so, so close to a major election year. Uh, this year has been more divisive than anything. And I know that our country is really divided. So now more than ever, it's really, really important for everyone to make sure that they're registered to vote. And you can do that with Headcount. Headcount is a nonpartisan organization that works with the music and entertainment industry to get fans to vote. Uh, to update or check your voter registration, go to headcount.com, or sorry, that's headcount.org, where you can find all the information you need to be ready for election day. More than 60% of eligible voters have never been asked to register. Did you guys know that? I did not. 60% of eligible voters have never been asked to register. And headcount.org is a way to change that. So you can actually request absentee ballots, get infos on early voting, find your polling places, or see what's on your ballot in your local area. Because of course, we know this is not just a presidential election. It's also where they pass uh, referendums, uh, bills, and motions, things like that. And uh, sometimes they will tack on other local ordinances and House uh, seats, yeah. Senate seats. Mm -hmm. Yeah. See other, yeah, seats. Go, yeah, some governor's mansions, I know, some state legislatures. It you know, depends on, on where you live. But yeah, there, there's a, lo a lot of things depending on where you live on the ballot. The deadline to register to vote in some states, it's as early as October 4th. So in some cases, it's already passed. So get on this, guys. Go to headcount.org and just make sure that you're set up to register to vote. Because I know I'm going to be at the <laughs> polls or throwing my ballots in a river. I don't know. <laughs> it's one or the other. So anyway, on to our social stuff, which is uh, if you think that we're doing an amazing job, you'd like to give us money. We're not going to argue with you. You can do that at pa uh, Pantheon, Pantheon, Patreon.com <laughs> and backslash Rock and Roll Heaven. You can find us on Twitter, Rock and Roll LT. Our Instagram is Rock and Roll Heaven LT. Our Facebook is Rock and Roll Heaven Pod, still not saying our website. And you can email us at rock and roll heaven LT at gmail.com. 
And please make sure to check out all of the other podcasts at Pantheon Podcast at rockandrollarchaeology.com. I'm going to pass everything back over to Mr. Hickey. Great. So as I mentioned, that story lined up a lot with my great uncle Charlie, who immigrated to Italy from to New York from Italy. Uh, he was around the same time period. Uh, and this is a long distance dedication to him. And like many long distance dedications, this one is a bit bittersweet. Um, I'm sad to say that this April, we actually lost my great uncle Charlie. He passed away at the age of 97. Uh, he was a widower. He lived alone till the end of his days. He was never in a home or anything. He lived on his own. He was survived by his three children, seven grandchildren, and six great-grandchildren. And on top of being a very prominent character in my family, because he was a character, he gave me two gifts. The first was the love of cooking. So Charles entered the US Army in 1941 to fight in the Second World War. He was actually deployed to the Mediterranean, which is often overlooked. It was a savage arena in World War II, from North Africa to Sicily, um, it was a very tough place to be. Uh, he was a cook in the army, and he quickly became known for his Sunday feast. Basically, Charles would make the meals throughout the week, but he would spend extra time trying to find whatever ingredients he could, so come Sunday night, he could do a nice Italian dinner for the boys. Uh, he would make sausage and peppers and pastas and pastries just to help keep everybody's spirits up, because these guys were eating you know, spam six days a week. Uh, right. To know you have a good meal coming on Sunday can kind of pull you through. Uh, plus, what's more than more Italian than that? Food fixes everything. I mean, you know, you're down on your luck, you're in war, eat. Um, so he prided himself in making good, good food for his men. And the other thing was, of course, the music of Frank Sinatra. As I mentioned earlier, he would play this stuff on vinyl. And I never realized until recently just what an impact it had on me. These songs were really timeless. So I want to say thank you, Uncle Charlie for introducing me to the timeless music of Frank Sinatra, because Uncle Charlie loved him some old blue eyes. And it's that appreciation that kind of carried me throughout my life and kept this music going through generation after generation after generation. So we'll do a quick sign off here and then we'll leave you with what I believe is the ultimate Frank Sinatra song, a theme for his life, a changing of seasons in life, aging gracefully and looking back life that you lived well. So. I'll turn it over to you and then I'll do the final sign off. Guys, thank you so much for checking out this episode. Uh, check us out next week where we're going to be starting our series on the 27 Club. We'll begin with that with uh, TJ, the deuce, doing Robert Johnson. Uh, yeah, a great episode. Thank you so much, Will the Thrill. Turning it over to Mr. T. Bye, everybody. <laughs> thanks tj and again uh thank you all for joining us on this little walk down the life of frank sinatra and uh, uncle charlie i hope i did a good job for you i hope you hearing this and uh above all thank you for introducing these things into my life because you did it your way so now let's hear old blue eyes talk about how he did it his way thank you all for listening and uh, now end is near and so I face the final curtain my friend I'll say it clear I'll state my case of which I'm certain I've lived a life that's full 
I traveled each and every highway and more, much more than this. I did it my way. Regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do, saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and more, much more than this. I did it my way. Yes, there were times I'm sure you knew when I bit off more than I could chew. But through it all, when there was dark.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 